0: Thanks, uh, thanks again for being here. Um, again, if you are new, uh, thank you for being the church and, and, and for bringing the church into uh, <clears throat> into, into this room. I, I want to um, just kind of bring out a simple thought um, to us this morning as we begin this time. Every human being um, is created with something within us uh, that drives almost every single one of our behaviors. Um, Every single one of us has something that commands the control center of our hearts. Uh, There's something within each of us that will cause us to do things that we didn't think we could do, that will cause us to to say things that we we, we never thought we could say, to think things that we never thought we could think, To give more money than we ever thought we could give. To spend more time doing something than we ever thought we could give. And what is that thing that every person has that shapes the contours of our lives in so many ways, in ways that we may not even know? The simple answer to that is we all have a king that sits on the throne of our hearts. And that king determines and dictates and drives so much of what we do. The way, way we spend our time, the things that we think about, the motivation behind the things that we do. Now, we all have a king that sits on the throne of our hearts. I have one, you have one. The people of God, Israel, had one as well. And it is an important thing for us to examine and to ask ourselves, who or what is the king that sits on the throne of our hearts? We're going to do this by looking at First Samuel Chapter 8. And we're going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long, but it's a pivotal point in the history of Israel. You saw uh, two weeks ago, we went through the book of Judges to talk about the fact that Israel at the time was being led by a series of charismatic leaders, deliverers called judges, who every time they would rise up would lead the people to a spiritual renewal. And whenever the judge would die, they would fall back into chaos. God would raise up another judge, and they would fall back into chaos. And the cycle would go on and on and on, but it only got worse and worse and worse. The revivals were shorter lived. The period between morality and immorality, the period of morality increasingly (coughs) shrank. And the people of God were in a time of chaos. Last week we saw through Pastor Justin, as we went through the book of Ruth, the story of one family, especially of one woman who was faithful in the midst of the time of the judges. As we look in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to continue the story of Israel's history, our story, and we're going to see what God has to say to us. This is God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told them, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials in attendance, your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you'll cry out for relief from the king you've chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, Everyone go back to this town. This is God's word. Okay, this marks a pivotal transition in the history of God's people. Up until this point in time, you remember that they were being led by these people called judges, and it marks a transition point to a monarchy where Israel would now be led by a king who would also be checked and balanced by prophets and priests. So this is the beginning of the Israelite monarchy. Three things I want to share, three things I want to bring out, and then we'll come to the table. The first thing is that the right thing isn't always the right thing. What do I mean by that? What are they asking for here? The Israelites are asking God for a king. Why? Because Samuel is old. Samuel was the very last. Samuel is a pivotal point character in the history of the Old Testament because he marks the last of the judges. The last of the judges. They didn't know he was going to be the last one, but he was the last of the judges. He was about to die, and so he appointed his two sons to be judges over Israel. The problem was, it says in verse uh, verse 3, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Nobody wanted leaders over them <coughs> who would take bribes and who would pervert justice. It's like having the mafia run a city. It's like Chicago, right? You don't want that. Nobody wants that. And so these, these elders of Israel rose up and they said, you know what? We don't want that, Samuel. We don't want your kids to be leading over our country, especially spiritually, morally, in any way. And so they said, will you give us a king? We don't want judges anymore. We want a king. Now, is a king what God wanted for Israel? One of the common threads you read throughout the book of Judges is it says, in those days there was no king, so the people did whatever they wanted. The book of Judges is written to be an apologetic to say that Israel needs a king. In fact, in Deuteronomy, well, in Genesis 17, first of all, God says to Abraham, from you will come many kings. So kings is not something that God does not want them to have. In Deuteronomy 17, there's a, in verses 8 through 14, God talks about the kind of king that he wants Israel to have. He would be a king who would lead them in covenantal relationship with God. He would be a king who would be an under king. He would be kind of the mediator between God and the people <coughs> who would lead them to be faithful to God and the covenant that they had made with him. He would basically be a king who would walk humbly as a servant to lead the people the way that God wants them to go. And so the problem with them asking for a king (coughs) is not that God didn't want them to have a king. In fact, even in the time of Judges, even in the time of Judges, God said, I will be your king. When it says that they didn't have a king, what it's literally saying is that they rejected God as their king. And so here they are being ruled by these judges, and they say, Samuel, we don't want your sons to lead. If you're Samuel, how do you feel about this? You're about to die. Samuel is old, and if he didn't know it, the elders come to him and they tell him, Samuel, you're old. You're about to die. That's what they're saying to him. And they say, we don't trust your children. And if you're Samuel, how do you feel? This is a Tommy Boy situation. You guys ever seen the movie Tommy Boy? This movie where Chris Farley um, is this, boy called Tommy he's kind of like this this goofy um, just incompetent he's just a dim-witted guy and he becomes the heir to this like auto factory and everyone is like there's no way this place could completely collapse under the rule of Tommy boy that's how the people are thinking and so they say hey we want a king and so here's Samuel he hears this after he's installed his two sons to be the next judges they say we don't want them to be the leaders over our people. So Samuel is sad; he's bummed out. He goes to God and he said, "God, this stinks. The people hate me. They hate my children. What are we going to do? What are we going to do?" And God looks at Sam. We well, didn't look at Sam. He looks at Sam. He's always looking at him. But he says to <laughs> Samuel, "says Listen, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Why?" was not a king what God wanted the people of Israel to have. How can they be wanting the right thing, the thing that God wants them to have, and yet they still say, God still says, you're rejecting me? It's simple, because you can do the right thing, and it still not be the right thing. A few weeks ago, My family, we just finished eating breakfast at a breakfast table. And Olive and I were were talking. The kids had gone off. We'd given them fruit snacks. And Elijah had finished his fruit snacks, and he came back looking for more fruit snacks. And he went to the bookshelf, or he went to the area in our kitchen where the fruit snacks were kept, and there were none left. And so he was upset. And he started complaining to mom and dad the way that he complains. I mean... Said, mom, Dad. <laughs> okay, so he, he, started, he, he wanted fruit snacks. That's what he wanted. He was upset. He was not happy. He was obviously having a bad day already. And so Manny, our daughter, came, and she's riding on this little blue little bike that we have, and she scoots over on the bike, and she's eating her fruit snacks. And she says, Elijah, Elijah, and she hands these fruit snacks to her. This is like the most beautiful moment to me. It's like this Psalm 133, how good and pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. Like, my heart was so moved. I was like, Olive, look at this. This is beautiful. This is our daughter. Like, this is our chosen child. And after Manny gave the fruit snacks to Elijah, she scooted away. Elijah followed her because he thought maybe she'll give me more. And I said, this is so beautiful. And Olive looked at me and, he, and she said, well, those were the flavors that Manny doesn't like. <laughs> you can do the right thing and it not be the right thing when you do it with the wrong motivation. See, The Israelites wanted a king. That's what God wanted to give them. But what was wrong? Hear what it says in verse 5. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. God said, Look, I, I want to give you a king. I'm want to give you a king who's going to lead you to keep my covenant you remember the covenantal laws were given the first reason it was given it was a uniform to set them apart from all the other nations to tell them you are different you're not like them and the king who's going to lead you the king i want to lead you is going to lead you to follow these 10 commandments to keep you set apart so that you're not like them so that you could be a city on a hill when they say, give us a king, they don't say because we, we want to follow, follow your God. We want to follow God. We want to follow the Ten Commandments. We want to be set apart. It says, give us a king. Why? Because we want to be just like all the other nations. That you can do the right thing, and it still not be the right thing. And so Samuel talks to God about this, and, and God says, Tell them, this is what your king is going to do. And so Samuel tells them, This is the kind of king you're asking for. And he brings that out before them and says, Verse 19, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, we want a king over us. Verse 20, Then we will be like all the other nations. So God says, Listen to them and give it to them. God says, It's not you, Samuel, they're rejecting. It's me that they're rejecting. You ever been? Have you ever been rejected before? Oh, that's so, Justin. You're only in sixth grade. You've already been rejected. It's, a, it's Like this huge sigh, gonna be heard all across the room. Oh, it's so sad. You've ever known the pain of rejection? You know, maybe you asked a girl out to prom, or you asked her to be your girlfriend, you asked her to marry you, and she said no. The sting of rejection. Is that what you thought? You maybe. Hopefully not, but maybe you have. You felt the rejection, that school that you wanted to go to, that magnet school or that college or that job interview, and they said, I'm sorry, but we've chosen somebody else. You ever been rejected before? God says, it's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. It's me that they're rejecting. And the heart of the Father is broken. But what what happens if you've been rejected? You could do one of two things. You could continue to pursue them and to ask them again. And to ask them again, to apply again, to keep on going, to say there must have been some mistake. To say, well, can you look at my transcript one more time? Can you look at my resume one more time? But sometimes the best thing that God does is he says, listen to them, let them have their way, let them walk away. When when I do marriages, when I do weddings, when I marry people, I, I usually go through a a pretty exhaustive series of, of premarital counseling sessions, um, usually about six sessions, about two or three hours each, just to make sure that they understand what they're going through and what it costs right, to be married. And so sometimes I've done counseling for people outside of our church. Sometimes I've done it for, for people who just want to be married, uh, want to go through counseling, but they don't want me to marry them. And, and I don't do that often because it is a heavy investment. Uh, but there was one particular couple that I was, I was doing counseling with, And every session, the second session, every time we gathered, the second session, I asked them, can you just share your story of how you guys got together? And they would share their story, and it's fun. And I do that for them to take a trip down memory lane, to rekindle those lost romances, and to be excited about life and love and, and hope again. And so this one couple that I was counseling, I asked them to share their story. And they said, we met when we were young. We fell in love. That's what they thought. We fell in love. They were like in high school. We fell in love. We started dating. We dated for many years. We dated throughout high school. We dated throughout college. And then sometime after college, the relationship began to get a little bit comfortable. They began to say, you know what? Maybe there's other fish out there. Maybe there are things that that we haven't seen. Maybe we need to get out there and explore a little bit more. And, And the man said to the woman, he said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm sure that you're the one for me. She said, how do you know? I'm all you've known. You're all I've known. We've, this is all we've known. We don't know anything beyond one another. Let's, let's, let's see. Let's just, let's just minimize our losses now. Let's go look for other people and see if they, can, if they can give us a happiness level far beyond our current level of comfort. And he said, I don't want to do that. And she said, I do. And so she said, let's part paths. And so they went, their separate ways. And she had meetings with other men. She had dates. She went on dates, went on relationships, had relationships a little bit here and there. As I'm hearing this story, I, 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 finally I look at them and I said, so, so what happened? And she said, well, I ended up coming back to him. I said, why? And she said, because after meeting two or three different people, I realized that there's no one like this guy. There was no one who could satisfy me, no one who could make me laugh, no one who could give me love the way that he did. And I looked at him and I said, "Chinta, you are the man." <laughs> and they got married. But a lot of times this is what God does to us. This is what God does. There are times in our lives where we reject God. Where we say, God, you know what? I don't want you anymore. I don't want you in my life. And, and sometimes God says, listen to them and give them what they want. Why? So that we could chase after other things in order to realize that there's nobody. We're, we're, we're going to come back to this place and realize that there's nobody like him. You know what? Sometimes the worst thing that God can do for you It's for you to have your way. Because so many times you have no idea what you really want and what you really need in this life. The right thing isn't always the right thing when we do it with the wrong motives. And God knows that. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see here. The second thing, rejecting God as king always comes with a price. Rejecting God as king always comes with a price. You, You know, throughout history, every nation or every group of people has had a leader. And some countries have had great leaders. And you know about great kings throughout history. There was a king, for those of you who are history buffs, you know the name James I. Anyone know James I? All right. Just as I suspected. <laughs> first king of Scotland, first king of England. He was, the fir- he was the one, James I, to unify these two kingdoms, the United Kingdom. James I, great king. Military success, all these things happened, and culture flourished under the reign of James. There's a guy named Joseph II of the Holy Roman Empire, the 1800s. He was a man. I mean, he's kind of like the John Morgan of our day. He was for the people. He abolished slavery. He cared for the people. He, uh, he just completely fixed the legal system. Right, this was Joseph II. There are a lot of great kings. Louis XIV claimed the fame. Louis XIV. He was the. He had the longest reign of any king, any monarch in Europe. Seventy. Two years, he was the king of France. Louis XIV, great king, he led France to become the superpower of their day in Europe during his reign. There have been some great kings, and as a great king goes, the people who call them king will follow. But there have also been some pretty nutty kings throughout history also. You ever heard the name Justin II? He was the king, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire used to be called the what? Right, the Roman Empire. When it was no longer cool to be part of the Roman Empire, they called it the Byzantine Empire. So Justin II he was a weird cat because he heard voices in his head. And the voices got so loud that he needed to hide underneath his bed and cover his ears and scream really loud in order to drown out these voices. The people who surrounded his court got so scared of him that the only way that they could drown out his screams were, was to play organ music throughout the palace at all hours of the day. <coughs> this guy was crazy. His people would try and console him, and they had to, get, um, they had to resort to more and more bizarre tactics. There was, um, the, the one thing they found worked better than anything else is they would build this portable throne and put wheels on it And they would put Justin II on it, and they would wheel him around, and he would giggle with delight as he would go through the palace like that. This guy was a nut. And you know what happened? The great majority of Italy was conquered by by the Persians under his reign. Because when you have a nutty king, the people who follow him are going to follow in nuttiness also. There have been countless, there's a king called Farouk of Egypt. Do you guys know, anyone heard of Farouk, Josh? no. Farouk of Egypt, 1950s. This guy was weird. He was really weird. He was, in his younger days, he was known for his partying and gambling lifestyle. People, when they looked at him, they described him as a stomach with a head. He ate and ate and ate. He was over 300 pounds. His sister wrote a book about him and said that every day he would drink 30 bottles of soda and he would eat caviar from the can. This guy is weird. He was an Egyptian king who had a lot of money, but for someone with a lot of money, he was very strange. He was a kleptomaniac. If you don't know what that means, that means he would steal things from people. This is a king of a powerful nation stealing things from people. And one of the most famous things he stole was he stole a watch from Winston Churchill. Isn't this, I mean, this is funny. This is Farouk. And when they called him out, they said, where did you get that? He said, I found it. But he didn't tell them that he found it in Winston Churchill's pocket. And he was a bad man. He One time he had this nightmare about lions attacking him, and so he went to the zoo in Cairo with a gun, and he shot all of these lions. This guy was a nut, a complete head case. When Hitler invaded his country, he actually sent a telegram to him saying, thank you so much for invading us, because at the time they were ruled by Britain. And he said, we don't like being ruled by Britain. Somehow the Nazis, Nazi Germany being led by them, ruled by them is a little bit better than that. And so everybody hated him. And so after he, he actually got overthrown in like 1952 or something like that, and they decided Egypt decided we don't want to have a king anymore. We don't want a king anymore. This guy was a nut. You know, as your king goes, so will your life go. Israel needed a king, just like you and I need a king. We need a king to protect us, to give us security to tell us how we're supposed to live. The question is who or what is your king? Listen listen to what God says your king is going to ask of you because every king demands allegiance. Listen to what it says starting in verse 10, verse 11. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve. Jump down to 13. He will take your daughters, verse 14. He will take the best, verse 15. He will take a tenth, the end of verse 16. He will take for his own use, verse 17. He will take a tenth, and you yourselves will become his slaves. The nature of the kings that Israel was calling for the nature, the, the M.O., the way that they operate it is that they will take and they will make you serve. And my premise here is that every king that you serve is going to take from you and is going to make you serve. The question is, are you serving the right king? What is the king of your life? What would people say is the king of your life? Listen, if your king is work, then you know what it's going to do? It's going to take from you. 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 It's going to promise to give you all. It's going to promise you security. It's going to promise you stability. It's going to promise you significance. It's going to take and it's going to take and it's going to take. And when you've got nothing left to give, it's going to make you its slave. What is your king? If it's money. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your time. It's going to take your thoughts. It's going to take your energy. It's going to take your devotion. It's going to take all that stuff from you and then it's going to make you its slave because it's not going to be able to give you what it promises you. Hey, what is your king? Is it a relationship? Is it longing for a relationship? Is it someone in your life? Because that person is going to take and take and take and take and demand, 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 demand. And when it doesn't give you what you want, you're going to become a slave and say, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you in order that you give me what you promise me. Because every king is going to ask you to make a payment. It's going to demand your allegiance. It's going to promise you something, but it's not going to be able to deliver. And every king that you and I bow down to in this life is the same way. It's the same way. It's a job that you want so badly. It's a status that you want so badly. It's that girl. It's a pleasure. It's sex. It's whatever you want. It's yourself. And it's going to cost. And it's going to take. And it's going to steal. And it's going to make you serve. How do you know who your king is? What do you think about all the time? What you think about all the time, that's sitting on the throne of your heart. Where do you spend all of your money? That thing is sitting on the throne of your heart. Where do you spend all of your time and all of your efforts and all of your energy? It promised you, hey, listen, you give it to me. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to satisfy you. And he said, just give me a little bit more. Just give me a little bit more. Just give me a little bit more. And I'm sure if you're like me, you've tasted and you've seen the complete bankruptcy of all that these kings offer, every guy that promised that, every girl that promised that, even the best things that promise these things can never give you what you long for. And at the end of the day, C.S. Lewis says, you know what? And if you find in yourself a desire, a longing that nothing, no experience in this life could ever satisfy, then the most probable explanation, my friends, is that you are made for another world. That your king is not of this life. Your king is not found on this earth. So where is this king? The last thing that we see, the last thing that we see, there's only one king that can give you what you need. There's only one king. Every king promises, but only one king can deliver. See, Israel thought that in having their king, they could have that the stability, the security. We could be like all the other nations. God says, let them have their way. And you'll see through the history of Israel what happens. Some good kings, some great kings, some bad kings, but at the end of it all, they all, they all fail. They all fail. Every king in this life will. And the kings of this world advertise in the same way that every advertisement, every commercial does. It it starts on this premise that this is what you need in order to make your life happy. This is what you've got to pay. And if you pay this, then I'll give you this. And I have not kept secret uh, my love for infomercials on TV. I love seeing commercials for the Magic Bullet and for the Shake Weight, for ShamWow and for things like that. It's fun to me because I love how they, I love the sell that they do. It always begins because necessity is the mother of invention with something that you don't have that's working out right. So let's imagine, let's just imagine with me a product We'll call it, I mean, there's a product like it, but we'll call it the hands-free blanket, okay? You've got this hands-free blanket, and it begins by saying, you ever sit there and you start feeling a chill, but you don't want to raise your power bill? And so you want to have this blanket on you, but your hands can't reach it. Your hands are not free, and so you stumble and you bumble through all these. What What if there was a blanket? Where your hands could be free. Where you could grab a remote control and stay warm at the same time. What if you could stay warm and answer your cell phone at the same time? What if you could stay warm and check your fantasy football stats at the same time? What if there was something like that? Well, wait, now there is. It's called the hands-free blanket. And then the the commercial goes on to show people wearing this hands-free blanket. They make it look so cool because they've got the best-looking people wearing them. The coolest kids at school walking through school wearing their hands-free blanket, giving high fives to other kids wearing this hands-free blanket. Oh, yeah, all the cool kids are doing it. And then you see them at an outdoor sporting event, and they've got their hands-free blanket on. See them at prom on top of their prom gown, dress, and their tuxedo. And everyone's got it. And it says, other places sell this for $59.95, but you can have it for $14.95. Just call now. And just as you're about to call, they say, but wait, there's more. If you call within the next one hour, we'll give you a mini hands-free blanket, perfect for your mini-me. Oh my gosh, this is great. Or for that dog that you dress up like yourself anyways. You can can get this mini hands-free, we'll throw it in for free. But wait, there's even more. Now, if you buy this, and we'll give you 15 knives so you can cut your carrots while you wear this hands-free blanket and you stay warm. Act now, and we'll give you all this for the low, low price of $14.95 plus shipping and handling. And so you get super excited because you're like, I've always wanted to chop carrots in my Snuggie. And so you pick up your phone. Actually, you go to the Internet because you want to do it that way. And before you do, you go to these reviews, and out of a thousand reviews of this hands-free blanket, every single one of them out of a five-star rating has given it zero stars. Why? I paid my 1495, and it never came. I paid my 1495, and the first time I washed that hands-free blanket, it shrunk, and I can't use it anymore. I paid my $14.95, I got these knives, but they can't cut anything. They couldn't even cut butter if they were heated. Like These are terrible, and everyone gave them zero stars out of five. Would you still buy that product thinking that maybe, maybe I'm the one who's going to change the fate of this hands-free blanket? What would you do if your friend said, you know what, I know everyone else said it doesn't work, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. What would you say to that friend? I say, you're an idiot. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Why would you give yourself to something that constantly promises but never delivers? And yet so many of us are doing that every moment of our lives. There are kings that we know will not satisfy us. That boyfriend. That pornography. That drug. Money. And we bow at the altar of these things. And we wait for it to give us the security, the significance, the salvation that it promises us but it never delivers. It only takes and it makes us serve. But there is a king who changes and flips the vocabulary of kingship upside down. Instead of taking and making you serve, he's the king who came. And on the night that he would be betrayed, the last night of his life, he symbolically lifted up bread and he said, this will be my body. And he broke it. He said, my body will be broken for you. He symbolically lifted up a cup and he said, this will be my blood. I will shed it for you. And he held it up and he said, take it. So that you could be satisfied. Here is your king. The only king that will ever give you what you need. Because it was this king, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, he did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This king, his name is Jesus. He's the only king that can satisfy you. Because he doesn't take, he gave himself. He doesn't ask you to serve him first. He served you fully. He became the slave of all. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking in appearance the form of human flesh, and he became a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus doesn't say pay and I will give you what you asked for. He says, I've paid it all. And I've given you what I promised you up front. Because you know what? You owed a debt that you couldn't pay. So Jesus paid the price that he didn't owe. And in giving that to you, he says, I've done it all. I've done it all. It's done. It's finished. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to bow down to this. You don't have to work for this. It's all been freely given. I promised it. I delivered it. It's all yours. I stand at the door and I knock. If you open the door, I'll come in and eat with you. I'll give you everything that you ever wanted that the world could never give. And your soul will be satisfied. Our lives are going to be ter- determined by the King that we bow down to, by the King on the throne of our hearts. Who is your King? And who is your King? Every other King in this life is going to fail you. He's going to demand from you. It's going to ask of you, and it's not going to deliver. But Jesus will. He already has. And because He has, we can give our lives to Him. Let's pray together. today um, Jesus is here with us now he came to fix our broken lives because we worshipped other kings we became enslaved the problem is not that we don't worship the problem is that we worship the wrong thing if worship got us into this place, this mess, then it's worship that's going to get us out of it. When we worship the right king, we pledge our allegiance to the right king. Some of us in here have really felt like we've hurt ourselves and we've hurt other people because we've worshiped and we've pledged allegiance the kings have promised us so much and we've given so much we've heard so much never been satisfied and maybe you're here today looking for that in just a couple minutes I'm gonna give us a simple invitation for anyone who wants to make Jesus their king for the first time in their lives to make Jesus king by confessing our rebellion and our need for Jesus to be our king ask him to lead us But in the meantime, in the next couple minutes, I just want to encourage you to spend some time soul searching. Who is your king? Who is your king? What is your king? What's on the throne of your heart? Is it your hobby? Is it your affections? Is it your possessions? Is it your future? Is it your wealth? Is it those people? What's on the throne? take a couple minutes right now just to bring that before the Lord just to confess Lord I've worshipped other kings put my faith in other kings it hasn't worked out would you forgive me and would you cleanse me and would you be my king let's pray for that for just a couple moments right now and in a minute or so I'm going to give this invitation if anyone wants to put their hope and their trust in King Jesus let's pray together just quietly in our own hearts right now for a couple of moments. ancient societies where they were led by kings when someone broke their vow of allegiance to a king they would have to be punished we were created every single one of us to live under the kingship of Jesus Christ but because we worshiped and served other kings punishment was demanded from us but an act of cosmic reversal and grace Jesus the perfect king came and he took our place and he took our punishment for our disobedience and he hung on the cross for you and for me for all who would believe in him. And the only thing he says you can have me as your king if you would put your trust in me. I'll give you everything that I promise if you put your trust in me. And the same way we began our time is how we come to this place Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If anyone opens the door, hears my voice and opens the door, and I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. That means I'll have fellowship with you. I'll be yours and you'll be mine and you'll be in my family forever. So as we keep our eyes closed in a posture of prayer, if there's anyone here, it just feels like, yeah, I'm ready to open the door. And the symbolic opening of the door, you can just raise your hand we're not going to call you up here or put you on the spot or anything, but we'll just pray a prayer together, all of us together, so that no one is, feels like you're being called out or isolated. But Jesus is here for you today. And when all the things of life have failed, and all the things of life have led to a, a dead end, he is the open door. He says, I'm here for you now. If there's anyone like that, just, I want to put my trust in Christ, in Jesus. From where you are, you can raise your hand. See you. Thank you. See you. Okay, see a couple of us in here. Thank you. There's a couple of us here who raise their hand. There's anyone else? We're just for another half a minute. You need Jesus. You want Him to be your King. Satisfy you like He alone can. of us here. Maybe there's other people just don't want to raise your hand right now. That's okay. I'm just going to invite you to pray this prayer after me, just in your heart. Just pray this in your heart. Say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I need a king. I have turned to other kings. And I've hurt myself. And I've hurt other people. Bible calls this sin, and I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Please wash me. Please cleanse me. Thank you that this is possible because you shed your blood for me, because you took my punishment so that I could be satisfied, so that I could be yours. Come into my life. Be my king. Be my forgiver. And help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. And as we uh, just continue to pray for just a minute, if you pray that prayer, then hey, you can pray to the Lord God a prayer of commitment and say, Lord, I commit my heart to you. Just confessing of the other kings that you've bowed down to and asking that he would have mercy and that he would help you to. Live with Him as your King. And for the rest of us, as we, maybe for uh, others of us, we prepare to come to the table, let's continue to surrender our hearts in allegiance to the Lord, thanking Him for the work that He's done, asking that His grace would wash over us, and that we would kneel before the cross, and that we would find our hope in Him. Let's pray for another uh, half a minute, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll continue. that there's no other king like you who would love your people the way that you do. We hear of great kings of the past who've done mighty deeds but none of them would lay down their lives for a people so undeserving. Father, we confess to you the kings that we've worshipped, the kings that we've bowed our knee to. I confess to you the kings that I've bowed down to. My comfort, my pleasure, my own desires, my own longings. Lord, we confess these things to you. And that you'd bring us to the place of confession like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, that under this sun, everything is meaningless. But when we lift our eyes above the heavens and we see the king of glory. We realize this is what we've been made for that our hearts were made for you and our hearts will forever be restless until they find their rest in you. May we do that. Lord, may we do that. We thank you. We love you. But we can only love you because you've loved us first. And in loving us, not because of anything lovable in us, but in loving us, you've made us lovable. Thank you. for mercy and grace so undeserved. Help us. Help us as we come to your table of grace to see you more and more. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus name.